title of this message today as we go back into Revelation chapter 11 is The Last Trumpet Sounds. The Last Trumpet Sounds. And for those of you that may be joining us today, we've been in a series that I believe that this is the 17th week we've been on uh, as we've really been taking a close eye at the book of Revelation. And what I want to do today is I'm going to read the, the entire 11th chapter to you because Revelation is a book that if we read it and hear it, we get a blessing. It says that. And so I want to read it to you, and then throughout the message, I will refer to different pieces of this that I believe that the Lord wants to minister to us out of. So if you have your Bibles and want to follow along, you can as we dive into Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshipers there, but exclude the outer court and do not measure it because it's been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have the power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have the power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now when their testimony, or now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their, body, on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet. And terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming soon. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. And your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding the servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Oh, Lord God, how great and powerful is your word, and how great and powerful are you. As we dive into this and begin to mine the nuggets of truth that you have for each of us, I ask that there would be the free working of the Holy Spirit in the minds and in the thoughts and in the hearts of every individual that is both here in person and those that are watching as this is live streamed and those that may watch it later on. Because there is something that you want to accomplish through your word, and we pray that you will do that as we give you freedom to do so. So lead us and anoint me as your servant this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As I said, I've titled this message, The Last Trumpet Sounds, and it's in reference to the fact that we have been in this studying and we've been 
studying the sequence of these trumpet judgments. And, and they begin back in, verse, or in chapter 8 where the first four trumpet judgments that took place broke out against the realm of nature. But before the fifth trumpet sounded, the Scripture says that there was an eagle that was flying in the air, and this eagle had the ability to speak. And it tells us in chapter 8, verse 13, that the eagle flying said this, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. And here is what happens as these next three trumpets break out. The fifth trumpet breaks out, and we know that we saw that the abyss is opened, and there is flooding out of the abyss demonic presence, and, and those that had been locked up and held till this time of judgment begin to come out in the, in the form of locusts loosely. The sixth trumpet sounds, and it ushers in a 200-million-man army, that then begins to face off with those on the earth. And then following that, there's this pause. And the last trumpet and the third and final woe, which is the seventh trumpet, is the kingdom of this earth becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And so that should tell us, as studiers of the word, that these woes, these, these trumpet judgments are not aimed at those that believe in God at this particular time. In fact, when we got to chapter 10 last Sunday, we recorded that John had an encounter with an angel that came down from heaven with one foot on the land and one foot in the sea, recognizing that he was over the entire aspect of nature. And he had in his hand a little bitty scroll, but it was already opened, unlike the scroll that we saw early in Revelation that was sealed with seven seals. And John was instructed to go to the angel and take that scroll and that eat it. And it was sweet in his mouth but sour in his stomach, indicating to us that we as God's people need to be internalizing the Word of God. There's a sweetness to it for us. It's a strength for us. The sourness comes when we understand that not everybody that we pray for, not everybody that we long to see come to a relationship with God will choose him. And as a result of that, we recognize that there's a sourness or a sickness to it because at the sound of the seventh trumpet, the grace of God is over. Revelation chapter 11 begins to show us as we combine it with 10 that God has a master plan that he is at work with. And as we get into chapter 11, it begins to address the theme of what is the role and the responsibility of God's people in this particular time of trouble. I will tell you right now, Almost universally, with every commentator and theologian that I am aware of and that I studied, they will all tell you that chapter 11 of Revelation is the most difficult chapter in the entire Bible to accurately interpret. There are as many interpretations of this chapter as there are people who read it. And so if you approach this chapter with some semblance in your mind of the way that you think you want things to go, or a particular theory that you might have as it relates to the last days, you can take certain words or you can take certain verses and you can probably build a pretty good theory out of that. But whether you believe that chapter 11 is to be taken literally or you believe that it is entirely symbolic or your belief is that there's a mixture of both symbolic and literalism to it, you could find something in the way that John recorded it and grab a hold of that and pursue that belief. And so my purpose this morning is not that I will take it and try to determine whether it is literal or symbolic or a mixture of both, but I'm approaching it from the aspect of what are the implications to us today as it relates to how John recorded this 11th chapter. How does it fit within God's master plan? How does it apply to our lives? And how does it fit within Scripture as we read it? Last week, I ended my message talking about that God has a plan that always involves the first point being this, a God-called people. You will recall if you were here last week that that is the way that we finished that up. That in the 10th chapter, there was a recommissioning and a recalling of John as a spokesperson that and that is something that God always does in his master plan. He always places his hands on people. In fact, Robert Coleman wrote in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism, Jesus' concern was not with programs to reach multitudes, but with men and women who the multitudes would follow. 
And so we start out where we left off last week, and that is this understanding. God is calling men and women. God is calling you and I who will stand up and let him put his hands upon us so that we can influence others in whatever realm of influence that we may have. He's always looking for men and women who will allow him access to you so that he can work through you touching the people that you are around. That's why he's putting his hand on your life. And that's why he is working so hard to get us ready. Because God's whole plan involves us. Everywhere you are, you are God's person there. God's plan for your company is you. God's plan for your marriage is you. God's plan for your family is you. God's plan for America is you. God's plan for missions for the world is you. Because he always starts in his plan with a God-called person. But he doesn't stop there. And this is where we move into this 11th chapter. He moves from calling people that then they would become spiritually empowered witnesses. What John sees as he's beginning to outline for us this 11th chapter is it starts out with a very, very Jewish scene. He sees a temple. It's being measured. And the measuring of a temple is always a sign in Scripture of the fact that something is being prepared. God's people are being prepared for something. And so the real focus here in this chapter is on how God... Before Jesus comes again in the end times is going to restore the Jewish people who have largely rejected Christ as their Messiah and how he is going to restore them. And so this chapter begins as we read it with all these Jewish images that would be really, really meaningful to the Jewish people. But then we get to verse 3 and it says this, and I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, for those of you that are regular Bible readers, you understand that whenever somebody is described as putting on sackcloth, it is always a symbol of repenting before the Lord, humbling yourself before the Lord, and it's a representative of repentance. And so these two are going to come, and in this particular time, before the seventh trumpet sounds, their ministry is going to be spirit-empowered so that they can call people to the Lord. And frankly, their ministry in these days will very much sound like the ministry we talked about at the end of last week from Robert Evers, Evans when he was preaching in Wales. And his message was this, confess all known sin. In other words, we live in a day and age where people rather than call something sin, are used to saying it's a personality disorder or this is an issue that I'm just struggling with and, or, or the reason that I'm like this can be traced back to my mom and dad or traced back to something else. And so I'm predisposed to this behavior. I believe that this very clearly brings us to a place where as a church we need to recognize from time to time we just need to fall down before God and say, I am sorry, Lord, it is sin. And I know that that's not what you want in my life and you're calling me to repentance from that. I believe that that message of these two will also deal with the fact that the church needs to sever from its relationship anything that causes you to compromise with the world. He will preach also that you will be ready to obey the Holy Spirit immediately and that we will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we will confess it publicly wherever we go. And so suddenly there are these two witnesses and they have a limited period of time that they will be preaching for 1,260 days or in the Jewish calendar that's 42 months or three and a half years. And if you know anything about prophecy, you know that this comes from the book of Daniel. And so this chapter 11 is a collision of all sorts of Old Testament images that are colliding in these two witnesses that are mentioned. And rather than speculating on what we don't know, or what this could possibly mean. Let's look at what is actually described and what we know that it means. The Bible tells us that these two witnesses will preach and speak for three and a half years. Now, three and a half years has always been symbolic of something that's not complete because seven is the complete number in the Bible. 
We've been through that already, knowing that seven is a complete number. So when you get to three and a half years, it represents something that's incomplete or it's broken. Now, here's what's important to know, because this is going to be the three and a half years when the reign of the demonic will roll over the earth, and it's important for the church to know that three and a half years means it will be an incomplete reign. It will not be a total reign. Satan's reign will be incomplete, it will be temporary, it will be broken. His will not be the last power standing at the end of all of this. So not only do we see this three and a half years of unrestrained wickedness, we also see God is working out a master plan proving he is in control of human history. And whether or not you believe that these two witnesses are symbolic or that they are literal, and people disagree about that. But we are clearly told that these two witnesses will have power to move in signs and wonders. In fact, in verses 5 and 6, it says to us that there is a divine protection during this unprecedented evil outpouring upon these witnesses. And that in their words, they're going to be able to speak and plagues will come. They're going to be able to speak and withhold the rain. And so all of those who are living under this evil realm will recognize there's a power they don't have that these two witnesses do. And they'll not be able to kill them until they're done with everything. Now, there are things that the Scripture describes to them that will remind those of you that are Scripture seekers, man, it sounds a lot like Elijah in the Old Testament. It sounds a lot like Moses in the Old Testament. And in the interpretation of this, there are those that when they look at this actually believe that Moses and Elijah will return to the earth and in kind of a reincarnated way set up and minister. I, I think that that might be taking the interpretation a little too far. But the references of calling down fire from heaven makes us think of Elijah and, and turning water into blood and calling forth the plagues makes us think of Moses. But it may be possible, according to this point of view, that these two witnesses, these end-time prophets, simply are individuals or churches or ministries that are moving in the character of Moses and moving in the character of Elijah, that rather than literally being Elijah and Moses coming back, that these would be individuals called for this particular time that would move in the same way as they did. Now, let me tell you why I think this fits with Scripture. When you recall that Jesus was getting ready to come to the earth, he had one that was going before him who was going to go and prepare the way for him, known as John the Baptist. And if you read in John chapter 1, you will, just, you will see described that the ministry of John the Baptist was likened to the ministry of Elijah. So John the Baptist came in the same character as Elijah, did Elijah-like things, but was a different individual. And so he was an Elijah-like person, which leads us to believe it is possible that these two prophets will move in the same way these Old Testament prophets did, but may be different people. We just don't know for sure. But here's what we are told in verse 4. It says, These two witnesses are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, I'd like to show you a picture of what many consider to be the two olive trees that are being mentioned here in Scripture. And these olive trees are just outside of Jerusalem. In fact, you can see the golden dome in the background. In the modern-day Jerusalem, these trees are on the Mount of Olives, and it's called the Mount of Olives because the soil there is so great for growing these trees. Did you know that you can cut down a tree, an olive tree, but if you will leave the roots in the ground, that tree will regrow, which shows us why they have such massive trunks. These things can be thousands of years old and still producing. So what we know of these olive trees is that not only do they produce fruit or food in the, in the aspect of olives, but there's also an oil to that that fueled their lamps and their lampstands. And the lampstands that we talked about earlier in Revelation that were being fed by these indicates to us that that oil of uh, an olive oil always represents to us the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so here we have the symbol that these who are serving the Lord in this difficult time are people who are full of and constantly being refreshed in the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we look at that, we go, where have we seen that before? 
Well, we've, we've seen it in Zechariah chapter 4 when the temple was destroyed and it was being rebuilt. And God said to Zechariah that these are the olive trees that stand before me. They represented the high priest and the governor at that time. And, and now we recognize that Jesus has assumed the roles of high priest and of king. All of these are now contained in Jesus, these, these offices that are embodied by him. And God said that these olive trees are the ones that I'm using to rebuild my temple and to bring my purpose to completion. And then right in the middle of this description, we find this verse, Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Now, here at Grace Assembly, we are part of the Pentecostal movement. And this has become the theme verse of the Pentecostal movement. It is not by might. In, in those moments when we feel as if we are fighting against culture, as if we are being pressed in from all sides, and we feel like we need to strike back, it is not by might that we will win this battle. It is not by power. We do not have to shove and force and overpower people. It is by the Spirit of the living God that our battle is being won, that it will be worked within us. And so we see these two witnesses that are lifted up as if they are olive trees in the Old Testament where God can picture that the witnesses to the world will need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, and I believe that's a word to his church today. God has brought to us the power of the Spirit this is part of his master plan, and it is not different than it is right now. I believe that in this last day's church that we need a fresh outpouring of the oil of the Holy Spirit that would begin to be deposited within our life so that wherever we go, we can shine with the light of the gospel because the darker it gets, the more the contrast is to the light. Scripture tells us that part of being spirit-empowered witnesses also enables you to have the power to finish your testimony. In the seventh verse, it says this. Now, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. We have just seen that we have two prophets that come on the scene who have the ability to be immune to any kind of attack for three and a half years. But finally, at the end of the tribulation, they are killed by the Antichrist. And this is our first introduction to the Antichrist, which you're going to learn a whole lot more about in two chapters. But there's an aspect of application here that is telling us that like these two witnesses, you and I must live in such a way that we finish our testimony, that we do not quit too soon. In fact, these witnesses, whether they be literal people or symbolic representations of the church, whether you view this or take recognition that this is something that actually took place in the lives of two or it was something that was symbolic, they didn't quit until their work was finished. In fact, there was divine protection until they were done. The Scripture says it's only when their work is finished that the Antichrist is allowed to exercise his power against them. And there is this sense in John's writing, and we've seen this sense in the writing of some of the other apostles, particularly Paul in, partic in particular, that, that in the days in which we live, in these last days of time, it's the hardness or the difficulty of remaining a Christian that's going to cause many people to say, I didn't sign up for this. This is one of the great concerns that I have for the American church, is that we have had so many people come into relationship with God with the idea of, Lord, not only do I want you to save my soul and, and relieve me of the guilt of my sin, but I want you to bless me. And then when we use that term bless, we have certain things that are in our mind as to what blessing looks like. Lord, I want to be provided for. I, I, I want you to give me a job. I want you to give me some influence. Lord, I, I want you to heal me. I want to, I want to always be healthy. Lord, I, I want it to be easy to live for you. Please don't make it hard. And in this writing, John is indicating to us that the aspect of the circumstances around us are outside of your control, but what you can control is your ability to say, regardless of what happens, 
I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will stand with him and I will stand firm in him because I know his Holy Spirit will enable me to do whatever I need to do. And Paul also, like John, recognized that even in difficult times, we don't give up. Paul also understood falling away has always been a concern when he wrote in 2 Timothy and he talked about Demas and he said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. In other words, there will be those that started out with the Lord that when things may get tight and when persecution may come, they're going to go, not me. Nope, I was in it for the blessing. And as a result, they will satisfy themselves with something temporary and lose out on that which was eternal. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, For as I have often told you before and now say again, and this describes the way he sees this, even with tears. I'm weeping as I say this. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, and their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. There's the blessings. Their glory is in their shame. I'm going to create a theology for myself that will allow me to do what I want, but I want the oppression of God to do it. Their mind is on earthly things. And they begin to outline very clearly the fact that in the last days of time, people will begin to create theologies and systems by which they can live however they want without the authority of God's Word being what they need to focus on. I think that the greatest sorrow that I experience as a pastor, and Cindy and I have talked about this often, is that over the 40 years of ministry, the numbers of people that we have seen come into the church and have an experience with Jesus and not finish that whatever the circumstances of their life may have been, they choose rather than to follow through in everything that God has given them. And we have seen the inflow and the outflow. Even in this own congregation, there are people who will fall away from the Lord that do not complete their testimony. And I struggle with this a great deal because there's a certain sense in which it represents a failure to me as a pastor. And I bear that personally as I think of the faces and the names of those that we have prayed with through the years, that today said it wasn't what I thought it was and have walked away from the Lord. But let me also share this with you, congregation. At times, there are people who have walked away from the Lord because of a failure in the church and among its people. There are those that have come to me and said, listen, I just want you to know why I'm leaving the church or why... The church is filled with hypocrites or why I can't choose to follow God anymore. And it has to do with something that took place in a relationship with an individual that attended the church. And where there is blame, if that has been in something that you have been involved with, then it ought to be acknowledged and repented of and confessed before the Lord so that we don't do this anymore. But I also need you to fully understand this. Every person will take full responsibility for their own falling. You will not simply be able to stand before God and say it's somebody else's fault that I fell. It's somebody else's words, something that happened in my past. Hey, this is just who I am. If the pastor had just come by my house sooner, if they had just texted me the moment they saw something was happening, if they had just cared enough about me individually, none of this would have happened and I wouldn't have fallen. If the church had just responded to me more quickly, I wouldn't have fallen away. And it is easy to blame spiritual decline on somebody else, on a pastor, on a church, on church people. But there is a certain sense which is encapsulated in this 11th chapter in which you choose to fall away and you will suffer the consequences for your decision as you alone stand before God to give account because his grace was sufficient for you. And the scripture tells us that we are to finish our testimony and finish the mission that God has given to each of us and so this admonition of Scripture gets a hold of us. We who are living right now should also finish our testimony and live it to completion so that we can involve ourselves in the reward that comes.
It's also a fascinating description that takes place here because it says that these witnesses are killed in the literal city of Jerusalem, but it is symbolically given two names that if you know anything about Scripture are fascinating. It is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. Did you notice that? So when we look at that symbolically, we recognize that Sodom allegorically is a representative of inhospitality to the Christian faith in hospitality to those that would believe the biblical truth of God. And Egypt then is a place where the people of God are kept in slavery. So Jerusalem becomes symbolically like Sodom and Egypt to those who know God and love God and love his word. And then these two witnesses, it says their dead bodies lie unburied for three and a half days. This is the grossest kind of insult in Eastern terms that could ever be given to anybody, to be left unburied in the open street for three and a half days. In fact, there's also something really fascinating as you're reading your scripture. John says something that would have made no sense to him but makes complete sense to us when he says this, they will be seen by the whole world. It's something that could not have been fulfilled in John's time. He was writing something prophetically that he had no idea how that was going to happen. And we look today and I'm going, absolutely makes perfect sense to us. We live in a social media day. We know that there will be people with cell phones recording the bodies. Then we know that the, the worldwide news is around. And we are living in a day where that could absolutely happen. And we could see it take place. We will literally see this. The two witnesses after three and a half days of lying dead in the streets are then resurrected by God and taken into heaven while Jerusalem immediately after that suffers an earthquake and experiences 7,000 who will literally die as fatalities. And at that, the remaining Jews recognize God's power, although many of them even in that will not repent. They simply recognize God's power. Then the last trumpet sounds. And the moment that that seventh trumpet begins to sound, the millennial age will have started. Then the temple of God in heaven is opened, and, and it is seen as a deliberate contrast to the temple on earth. We who are living in this temple, in this church, in this age, recognize that we are in a constant battle for our faith. We are in a constant battle to keep our testimony fresh. We are in a constant battle daily just to be in prayer and full of the Spirit of the Lord. But what he is telling us is that this battle is going to come to an end. There's a heavenly temple that is coming, and there's never been a battle there. We know who's in charge there, and that will descend upon earth, and we will get to see the doors open and enter into that in full victory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And suddenly, the old covenant people, that in my mind, all of them have really gray old beards, and the new covenant people, they're going to look at us and go, what kind of clothes are you wearing? And suddenly we are going to gather around the throne together and we're going to begin to worship all of the nations, all of the languages, all of the tongues together to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the scripture says the kingdom of this world. Notice it didn't say the kingdoms. In other words, what was being lumped here is that every kingdom that's ever been run by man is against the kingdom that is run by God. Whether it's been a dictator, a president, whether it's been a monarch or a king, every kingdom of this earth will be subservient to the kingdom of our God. And his kingdom will come. God's temple will be opened. And the chapter tells us of the conversion of Israel. Now, having said all of that about this chapter, let me just bring this up. Dr. George Wood wrote in one of the things that I was reading, he said, listen, you almost have to approach this chapter as if you were sitting among a bunch of rabbis before Jesus was born. He said, if you could have had a conversation with them in the Old Testament and you were to take all of the prophecies of the coming of Jesus' birth and ask them to accurately interpret what it would look like, he said, not one of them would have got it right. It wasn't until after the event that they looked back and said, oh, that's how it all fits together. I think that that probably is what's going to happen for us as it relates to much of Revelation. As things begin to unfold, there's going to come a time we're going to be standing with the Lord and we're going to look back at this and we're going to go, oh, that's the way that that all fits together. But here's a final thought that flows through 
not only this chapter, but also Revelation, and that is that in the end, it will be a Jesus-centered victory. Jesus-centered victory. In just a few minutes, we're going to begin and prepare ourselves to have communion together. And when we hold those self-contained cups on the top underneath the lightest cellophane wrapper is a styrofoam wafer. But we eat it because of what it represents. It represents the broken body that was beaten and nailed to the cross, humiliated Jesus. Then we will hold the cup, which symbolizes the shed blood. And here's where we struggle. And this is what chapter 11 answers for us. We are living in a day and age where, honestly, we look at Jesus and think of him as the victim. Every time we have communion, we see him as the victim. I was speaking to a friend this week who came from a background where in their church, Jesus is still on the cross because he's, it's, he's the victim. We live in a world that thinks Jesus is a victim too, but they're about to see him differently. Because in this 11th chapter, what happens is that Jesus defeats evil and becomes the victor. And it changes the perspective of the church today in the way that we approach not only Scripture, but our relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, we have communion representing the fact that you were a victim for my sake. You took my sin on you, my shame on you. It wasn't yours, but you became a victim for me so that I could become a victor with you. And that's the seventh trumpet that sounds and suddenly the victimhood of Jesus and the victimhood of the believer is turned around and we march in the victory of Jesus Christ when it tells us in verses 8 through 12, and their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. In other words, they look back and say, you thought you won then too. For three and a half days, the incompletion of your reign, Satan, Men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on the bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate by sending each other gifts. This is the anti-Christmas. That's exactly what this is. And we'll get into the Christmas story next week. This is the Antichrist thinking the same thing that th Satan thought when he had defeated Jesus on the cross. But now they're sending gifts to each other because the church's witness and testimony has been removed and unrestrained evil can, can do whatever they want. They finally think they are free of a moral obligation to the Word of God and they send gifts to one another. Antichrist with an anti-Christmas. But it doesn't last long because those two prophets who had tormented those who live on the earth, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered into them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. I have to think that's the same feeling that the demons had when Jesus rose from the dead. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies looked on. They went up. Their enemies stayed here, separating those who know Christ from those. And as a result, Israel turns to the Lord. Listen. This is the closest language that we have in Revelation to rapture language. In other places in the New Testament, it speaks of believers being caught up before the final return of God. And, but here is what we know. What we know is that this is a Jesus-centered victory. Jesus is the victor. Those who live with his Holy Spirit within them, who are current and up-to-date on their testimony, are living in victory. We might seem like we're the victim, but you just wait, because the final trumpet is going to sound, and then we will know those who belong to the Lord. So where do we fit this in? We have just lived through this period of time where we had an election. And at the end of the election, there was declared a victor. And between the time of the declaration and the time of the inauguration, he was known as president-elect. Everybody knew who was going to be the president. He just hadn't been inaugurated yet. I believe as the church that we are living between the time when Jesus has been declared the ruler-elect of the universe 
And there are those that may not yet recognize it, but he is coming again. And it's in that little period of time that we as the church have opportunity to live out our witness and finish the job and finish it well. And there is in this verse, for those of you that love music, the words that come from Handel's Messiah and the Hallelujah Course. And today I want you to take your communion and I want you to stand with me in honor as we play Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Course, and you recognize where this comes from in the celebration of this. Would you please look at the screen as we see this song sung? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Can you imagine the singing around the throne of God? Can you imagine the majesty of being able to join with voices and people from around the world as together we come recognizing that we have been filled with his Holy Spirit and we have finished our testimony and we enjoy the victory of Jesus Christ our Lord. And as you take your communion cups, Normally, I read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but today I'm going to read out of a Revelation 11. And if you will just put your finger on the top flap and push it down, not up, down, it will release that top little level for you there. Scripture declares, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, I couldn't help but stop there and think. 
all of those who persecuted the church, all of those who doubted, when those witnesses come to life again and they hear the voice from heaven, they heard loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. Satan's power was broken, incomplete. You are the Lord God Almighty, complete in power, full authority, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, that's us, and those who reverence your name, both small and great, and for, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. Would you lift before the Lord that which is the symbol of his broken body? Lord, when we do this, we recognize that from our perspective, this makes you look like a victim. But we have been given a different, pers a different perspective, an eternal perspective, that this that we live in now is not the real life. This is not the real reality. This is temporary. It's a shadow land. The real is to come, and that we are told to finish our testimony, be full of the Spirit, let nothing turn us away, quit making excuses about what others have done, and begin to take hold of who we are in you. And so, Lord, as we hold this, which is the symbol of your broken body, as you paid the price for us, we give you thanks knowing that we won't be doing this forever. It's only until you come. So thank you for suffering in your body what we deserved, and we participate now in thankfulness to you. In Jesus' name, let's eat that together. I have said so many times, and all of us probably feel the same way, that we have this this trembling in our spirit when we think of standing before God to give an account of our life. And the reason that we, we feel this trembling is because we recognize that Satan is going to be the accusing attorney. And he'll have such a list of things that accurately describe our nature that we are so afraid of when, when the Father is reminded of things that he has forgotten that he will look at us differently. But so powerful is the blood. So powerful is the blood that when he said it has been washed away, it's as if it never happened in the eyes of our God. So when you're thinking about how do you want to live out your testimony, I want you to understand the completeness of your salvation and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. This is not the blood of a victim. This is the blood of the victor. And we shall wear robes of righteousness because of his victory. So Father, we ask your blessing upon this which symbolizes your blood that you shed for our salvation. May we not cower in fear in these last days, but may we stand full of the Holy Spirit and the boldness that you provide for us through your Holy Spirit. Not as proud, but Lord, may we stand with an influence that will affect millions while there is yet time before the trumpet sounds. And on this day, we celebrate the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, not a victim, but the victor. Let's partake together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So here's the challenge as we wrap this up and then I conclude in prayer. 
It is so easy. Have you noticed that it's so easy to get caught up in the temporary arguments of what's going on in the world? And, and, and some of you are love debate. Some of you have an argumentative nature that is just stoked by this stuff. Can I just remind you that the best thing that we can do is point everyone to Jesus? Because his Holy Spirit is at work through your words and your life and your actions and will draw them because your facts aren't going to change anybody's mind. The Holy Spirit's ministry through your life will. In fact, I, I saw something this week that said, facts aren't facts if they come from somebody you don't respect. They'll be dismissed. And so here we are being called to not engage in the muck and mire of the world. We've got an eternal call upon our lives. God's placed his hands on his people. He's filled us with his Holy Spirit. He is the ultimate victor. It is a Jesus-centered victory, and we must always point to him. And as we do that, his name will be lifted up and people will come drawn by the light. And that's the message of chapter 11. So Lord, use us. So Father, as we draw this service to a close, would you just percolate in our spirit all that we have heard? I know that there is so much. There's so much. But you, by your spirit, will begin to activate within each of us the things that we need at just the moment we need it. And for those that are living in circumstances where they are tempted to give up, they're tempted to throw away everything that they know is right because it's hard, would you give us the stability and the power and the boldness of your Holy Spirit to stand firm and not give up our testimony? Because if we fail, others will turn away. So Lord, give us strength, I pray. Not that there's added pressure upon us, but we just want to be all that you make us to be. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.